Hello, Bayesian Conspiracy listeners. This is Kyle, the sound editor and sound designer of this podcast. A while back, we asked you, our listeners, if you could help us create a new musical intro and outro for the show. We'd like to thank you all so much for your submissions and for all the other wonderful contributions made to our podcast by the rationalist community at large. Today, we'd like to introduce these new listener-created compositions, which will permanently replace our old, yet beloved, heavy metal track. Our new intro theme music, which you will hear at the conclusion of this announcement, is composed by David Gruvier, who also did some composition for Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Our outro music was composed by the dynamic duo Sumerki and Keeper. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Eniash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and today we have a guest. But first, we are going to do listener feedback. Uh, we're doing listener feedback at the top today because the guest is a little bit late, but we will introduce him as soon as he gets here. Gotcha. Before we get into actual listener feedback feedback, uh, I want to do a host opinion update. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So a f- couple months ago now, I think, we had the marriage episode. Uh, where I came out as basically against marriage in all its current present-day forms, and I, um, I got some I don't know f- feedback. I don't. Uh, people have talked to me a bit, both uh, both through I I M and through uh, messages on Reddit and stuff about it, and I am moderating my position slightly. Uh, I think that there is a place for marriage when it comes to one person staying at home and taking care of the kids and being the homemaker because there is um for for both parents to work and have to pay for someone to to be the homemaker and to take care of the kids is really expensive and that is something that you can do if you make a lot of money but uh in a recent post on oh god i forgot the blog it is but uh the name of the post is seizing the means of home production <laughs> uh it just pointed out that it can be really economically useful to team up with another person and split these tasks where one person works outside the home the other person works inside the home to raise the kids keep things running and you know there's a lot of other crap that goes on with keeping a household running more than just than cleaning and keeping kids there's the taxes there's all sorts of running down to city hall whenever that needs to be done. There's a lot of chores which I, you know, I have to do myself, which is a pain in the ass. Right now, my car is overdue on maintenance because I haven't had fucking time to go and do it. And if I had someone in the house that had some extra time every now and then to help me out with that kind of stuff, that'd be really useful. Uh, someone else wrote me saying that. Hold on, what's that? How's that tie into marriage? Well, and and someone else wrote me and said that yeah, her and her husband both had a uh, strong careers, but they really wanted kids, and so she, due to the protections that marriage gives, uh, she felt comfortable quitting her job and raising the kids instead, and that's fair because when you go into a 
partnership with someone, you need some assurance that they're not going to just punk out on you after five years if you guys have decided to go into this for a long time because you are giving up a lot of income and not only that, but a lot of work experience and resume building when you're staying home instead. And so that's, that is a valuable thing. So that empty box that Nazim talked about that... That's where the, that's where the marriage is. It just it's it's a box with high walls that makes it hard to get out. I've, so the benefit that so that the protection that you're mentioning there is the the insulation from like an easy dis- dissolving of the relationship. Well, no, saying, I don't, look, I'm giving everything up to to do this, uh, and like my life track, or I guess both of our life tracks kind of depend on this not falling apart in the next five years. Let's lock this down with some legal work. Is that what you're saying? No, because I don't think that people should be should have a harder time getting out of a relationship they aren't happy with. I think if anything, that that should be easier because there's a real, already a lot of psychological barriers to it. But I do think that if someone does give up their career, then it is good for there to be like, honestly, I think of it more of an LLC kind of thing. Uh, you and someone else have teamed up and there is some assurances that even if you do dissolve this LLC, that you won't be left destitute. The, you will have access to half the resources that you guys together created because even though one person was working outside the home to bring bring an actual cash money, the person working inside the home was contributing as well. That's why you formed this LLC with the other person to take advantage of their labor without having to pay someone to do it. Uh, So yeah, getting half the stuff and then getting some, uh, I, I, not severance, but, but that's sort of after you've been let go from a job, they, they keep paying you out for a while to transition for your transition that I think that sort of thing makes a lot of sense. And I just hate the fact that it is called marriage and it is tied to, uh, having your relationship being respected by society. And if you are in love, you are considered supposed to get that. And I think all that is total bullshit. So from now on, I am going to refer to all marriage as homemaker protection contracts. And, uh, that, that is cause that is the legitimate use for them. And I think that, is what they should be called. And right now, my sister is going to be entering into a homemaker protection contract with someone, which I think is stupid because both of them are continue going to be continue. Both of them are going to continue working outside the house. No one is staying home to raise kids and make home because they don't want to do that. So I don't know why they're getting a homemaker protection contract when. They- well, sure. When you rebrand it that way, then it sounds stupid, right? Yes, yes. So, but that is it- that is my that is my <laughs> direct intention. <laughs> So yeah, if someone is staying home to be a homemaker, good on you, get a homemaker protection contract. But otherwise, I think it's silly. Well, that's that's nice to hear an update. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I mean, my general feedback or my general thoughts on it are like, it makes sense to protect yourself from bad situations, just like you don't want to enter into a lease with somebody who has broken six leases in the past or something, right? Because mm-hmm. then, you know, your chances of being fucked are pretty high. But if they have a good lease history and they, you can check their their... Uh, relationship credit score and it comes out great, then I don't know. I, I guess what uh, so ruining the metaphor, I think that if you, if you calculate the risk to be super low and most people, I actually, I, I rate to that. Most people don't even calculate the risk. They just think this is what people do. We get married and I got to lock this down. Yeah. That's, um, that's the problem. But to the extent that any thinking person is getting married and they have the time and energy to like consider the question, uh, is this a risk to my future? And the answer is most likely no, then it's like, you know, if it makes one person happy or makes both of you a little happy or whatever, then I don't know. Yeah, but it it's always a risk. And that's that's actually, that was my same thinking with my last marriage because I was already kind of against marriage, you know, but it made her happy. And if I had just thought of it as homemaker protection contracts, I would have been like, 
no, we don't need to do that. And, and I think I'm going to keep doing that because that's basically their legitimate function, in my opinion. There, there will always be some risk involved, and that is a risk you're willing to take if, you got, if you're getting a homemaker, you know, life partner out of the deal. Maybe it's not scary to me because I don't have any stuff. Like, oh, well. If I, if I don't have a life savings or a house, then like, you know, yeah, great. You can, you can have half of my 1999 Honda Accord. Are you right? planning to have no stuff for the rest <laughs> of your life, though? I don't know. I mean, when in doubt, bet like the future being like the past, right? So. <laughs> cool. Um, no, I, I plan to have stuff. We're trying to buy a place. But yeah, no, I, hear, I hear you. It's, it's something to think about. Um, and it's nice to have a moderate uh, move back. I don't know if we put this in the air or not, but after the recording when we did that episode, um, Naveen asked if there was anything that you had if you'd get ready under any circumstances. Yeah, you did you had, mention this, I think, uh, the next episode. Oh, good, because I, yeah. I thought that was awesome. So oh. it wasn't like you were just like, no, I hate it forever and it's bad for everybody. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it showed that at least I thought about it. So cool. cool. All right, what else we got? All right, on to actual listener feedback. Oh, wait, we should uh, thank our supporter as well before I forget. Ooh, and yes. to thank our awesome sound engineer, Kyle Moore, who makes this sound like audible chocolate in your ears as yeah. opposed to like a cheese grater uh, ruining like a record. I don't know. He can't make that sound any better, but he can make it. He can. He can't make the words sound any better, but he can make the the sound sound better. Yeah. Oh, well, who what was the name so I can add it to our list that you guys think last week when I wasn't here? Uh, the most recent one that. Yeah, put it was like two on. first names, right? Like Chris Johnson. That or? sounds right. I'll find it. Okay. Um. Yeah, but we can thank the next person. Okay. This week we would like to thank our Patreon supporter Stefan Abs, or possibly Stephen Abs, and. I'm assuming it's abs. It's ABS. Yeah. Sounds right to me. Hope the guy has great abs because otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Stefan or Steven? Uh, uh, I guess I should ask him. Yeah. I mean, Steph, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it does. We want to say your name right. Hopefully it's one of those two things. We really appreciate your help. It makes everything awesome and uh, keeps the lights on over here. So thank you very much. Yeah. So the, the second to last episode that came out, so we recorded these, you know, how we've mentioned it before. We kind of cut, lead some in advance. So two episodes ago, we did one with Vivian on uh, what was, it didn't turn out to be what it was going to be about, but then what it actually ended up being about was just like, I don't know, how to try to think sanely about uh, privilege and social justice warriorism and that sort of stuff. And we got a lot of feedback, kind of like this this comment on the uh, the website from Pink Wojak. That said, I found the double think required to understand privilege unbearable. Please don't do that again. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a there was one of the most active subreddit conversations on there. And by all means, go check it out and add stuff. Ooh, as long as we're on both the subreddit and privilege, should I read Ustis's comment on about privilege? Yeah, go nuts. Okay, Ustis on the subreddit of uh, talked about privilege. Ustis says. I really dislike the term privilege because it has a different meaning in colloquial terms versus how it's used in sociological context. This is very uh, this isn't very unlike theory as in in the scientific model term as opposed to how people use theory in in day-to-day talk like to mean hunch. Yeah, yeah. It's my theory that your spark plugs need to be replaced. Anyways, Ustis says privilege from a sociological perspective can be looked at simply as a set of problems that a particular group of people simply doesn't have to deal with just by being a member of that particular group of people. A poor white person has a much lower chance of being pulled over if they drive through a neighborhood predominantly populated by a different racial group. Just by being white, they have a higher chance of being considered for a job. Typically, when someone is saying that a person is privileged, they aren't dismissing that person. They are pointing out how they are being dismissed by the person's unawareness 
Rather, they are pointing out how they are being dismissed by the other person's unawareness of the kinds, severity, and frequency of problems that they're talking about. And uh, my, my feedback on this is that I totally agree with that. And this is one of the problems with talking to uh, everyone else in the world is that Privilege does have a distinct technical meaning in academia, one that is entirely reasonable and that you can't really argue against. You're like, yes, this is a thing that really exists and it really does make life easier if you're white. But uh, that is not how it's used out in the real world. In academia, in that rarefied atmosphere where you're only talking with other people that know these sorts of things and that are fairly reasonable about this sort of thing, I should hope, um, some of the new stories you see out of colleges makes me wonder about that nowadays. But uh, in those places, yeah, that that's that's a good way to use it. But out in the non-academic world where I hang around with a, a fair handful of SJW types, I usually see it as shorthand for why it's okay to denigrate or attack a person or a group. Um, it's because like, well, you're a white person, you have privilege, and therefore it's okay for me to call you a piece of shit or whatever it is. Right. And that's, that is how most people outside academia see it being used, which is why I think it has got this sort of backlash because you're, you're using it as an excuse to punch people. If we go back to the punching analogy, you're like, you're white, you're privileged. I don't care about you. I don't care about your life circumstances. I don't care if you just got, well, I was about to say, I don't care if you just got raped last weekend. They probably would care. But the point is, they don't know what your life is. They just know that you're white and therefore it's okay to be an asshole to you or to like, you know, punch at you. Well, and that's, I mean, you know, and I get the terminology and someone would say, well, it's not actually punching. But as long as we're using that, that phrase, like, just don't, why are people throwing punches in the first place? And I get like, we come from positions of privilege in the academic sense Mm -hmm. to where it's easy to say why we're not throwing punches because we we haven't been pushed to that extreme maybe. But at the same time. Was it uh, was it one of the commenters? I'm trying to remember how to pronounce the name. It was like, um, give me a second. Sorry. Mordena Mile. Yeah, Mordena Morden a male. Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of good comments. That, that's your bad for making it hard to say. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I know who this is. So, uh, but uh, uh, I think that's basically a, a tactic of like a Mott and Bailey, right? Have we talked about that in the podcast before? No. Should we cover Mott and Bailey quickly? I think we should. Okay. Mott and Bailey was introduced by Scott Alexander as a, the quickly uh, in terms of the analogy in old medieval cities, the uh, Bailey is the area around um, the area in a settlement where useful work is done. It's where the stables are, where the blacksmith is. Uh, there's, probably don't have the storehouses of grains but anyways it's the place where economic work gets done where everyone actually does the life where things happen uh and the bailey is like the big tower in the center that's super well fortified and you want the mott because that's where things get done but when someone comes by and you need to defend yourself everyone retreats to the bailey they rain arrows down upon the invaders until they leave until then they can go or everyone goes up into the mott did have i been saying this backwards i honestly don't know so i don't the mott is the big tower Okay. The Bailey is where the useful work is done. That's fine. Everyone goes up into the Mott. They stay there. They're fortified. And then once the enemy leaves, they go out to the Bailey again. And in the analogy is the Mott is something like the way uh, privilege was said here. That uh, privilege is that a group, uh, a sort of a series of problems you don't have because you're in a certain group. Like you won't get pulled over by the cops for driving through a neighborhood. Um, and that is true and unassailable. And everyone says, yes, that's true, but that is not 
where the useful work of the the term privilege usually gets done. When we see the work that the word privilege uses get does, it's always in reasons to ignore people or shit on them. Exactly. And like to tell people to shut up and get out of here. I feel like the best way to to explain this analogy so the mott is the defensible one the bailey is the not defensible one yes all right so like the mott of like feminism is like we just want equality for women yeah. it's like everybody wants that anyone yeah. who doesn't want that is obviously a shitbag mm-hmm. but the the movement may have been hijacked by people you know who will the second you say like hey look why are you shitting on trans women like turfs like we talked about in that episode and they're like uh you know well fuck them they're not real women or whatever whatever their bullshit arguments are and then you say, well, your whole thing is, is nonsense. Then like, no, 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 all we care about is equality for women. And so I think, you know, people, people will deploy that when attacked and then move back to not using that steel version of the position and then just attack with, with, you know, bullshit situations. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just found Morn de Males, uh, um, thing about that post about that. If you want me to read yeah, it go nuts. quickly. Okay. Statements like men have more social power are very susceptible to Mott and Bailey shell games. Consider men are taller than women. In colloquial usage, this means, statistically speaking, the mean height of men is higher than the mean height of women. Everyone knows you don't mean 100% of men are taller than 100% of women because everyone is very aware of the actual fact of the matter here. And everyone is aware that everyone is aware, etc. So there's a low risk of being misunderstood. Now consider men have more social power. True, but boring. The median man can get away with more BS than the median woman. Also, the most powerful humans tend to be men. Here's the false but highly inflammatory, yet frequently asserted as truth statement. All men are more powerful than all women. In some vague sense. Yes, even a poor disabled minority has more social power than Sarah Palin because he's a man. Somehow. That's how privilege works. Stop asking clarifying questions. <laughs> <laughs> that reads a lot like Scott Alexander. Yeah. And so the true but boring meaning is true but boring. That's the mot. Most men would readily admit to it because it frankly doesn't mean a whole lot. Yeah, I suppose in the history of the world, that's how things have turned out. The second assertion, the Bailey, is a falsehood. Why defend a falsehood? Why commit a falsehood in the first place? Does the position that men should be more sensitive to the historical roots of present-day inequalities require that we assert a falsehood? I hope not. And yeah, that's the thing. The Bailey is like a falsehood that does a lot of work, but isn't defensible. And I find that like and you switch back and forth between them whenever you need to defend your statement. Exactly. And I don't, I don't like that approach. And it's, it, I might do it in real life. I'm not sure if you ever see me doing it, call me out on it. Cause it'd be interesting to see what it feels like. Um, but from like, from the outside, it looks, to, it feels dishonest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know people in real we should, life, we should, yeah, we heard the doorbell. Door. So yeah. bink. Yeah. Do you remember what you were saying? Um, just that in real life, when people discuss privilege, they uh, they are equipped with the proper definition, but that's not how it's usually employed. Yeah. And so if you ask them to be like, well, can you explain that? They'll give you the academic version, but then they'll go right back to not using it that way. Yeah. In my experience. And the switch is always on the sly between the Mott and the Bailey, which is what makes it such an effective tactic. Yeah. So that said, we, are, uh, we did the listener feedback first. We're jumping back to doing the actual episode now. So uh, check out the subreddit for that episode for some engaging conversation. Um, wait, but there were two two other things that possibly we can engage before we jump into Josh's thing. Yeah, go nuts. Okay, you're you're cool. going to jump in here whenever you want. Uh, I was going to say when we talked about the punching thing and you asked why are we punching anything, I, it 
bunching is very similar. The first time I heard it, and I think this is where it originated, though I'm not sure, it was a term used by comedians that uh, you're allowed to make fun of the president because he's the fucking president. You can't hurt the president. He's, he's up there. He's got a lot of power. And they, they called that like punching up at the president. You can mock him all you want. Uh, but if you're like mocking the disabled black person in your audience, that's a shit thing to do. Don't do that. That's he's below you in in his station in life. And that's why you don't punch down, which was the, where I believe the term originated from comedy. It could punching be. up is funny. Punching down is a dick move. Also like roasting would be funny to do with people who are on board or like, you know, even somebody who maybe isn't on board, but is socially equipped to take the reputational hit from being made fun of. Yeah. But you don't grab some random person and start shitting on them like roast style. <laughs> right. So. And then, then the term gets co-opted by the larger society. And now all of a sudden, anyone who you think is above you in social privilege or status or whatever, you can rip on for whatever reason. I'm also just not a big fan. And I, I mentioned this to Eustace on the, uh, I had seen this mentioned to Eustace on the subreddit. If this is 50 years ago and DNA tests were readily available and people, you know, were, were, uh, say like a, an Italian person, this is, you know, back when they were less, uh, uh, equal in society in America if they were punching up at somebody and then oh it looks like three out of the four grandparents were non uh, Italian white or something then like are they doing the wrong thing like, it depends if they're not really Italian but maybe if they thought they were I just I feel like you can avoid a lot of that thinking by uh, just not, not throwing punches shitty. period but again, I, I recognize that I say that from my from my position so I, I, I feel, if there's something there to be had there probably is but I, I just feel like you also don't make friends that way. And, you know, I, I don't know. I loved Eustace's comments. They were very long and thoughtful, but I didn't find my mind changed. Um, but I did find them engaging and they're a nice way to, to analyze this. If things weren't clear in the episode, I thought they were very clear in those comments. I think he has, yeah, some, or I think they have some very good points and I like what they have to say. I just, this is why we engage, you know, everyone, right? Yeah. Because there, there are many sides to the stories. Uh, finally, Morin de Miao, also on the subreddits. We got to, find out how that name's pronounced i couldn't help but apply a hansonian lens while listening can't imagine why <laughs> essentially every culture war topic almost any tough topic is something that doesn't matter more concretely your weighing in on the issue on facebook twitter or in person accomplishes almost nothing at most you will slightly change one mind via several hours of effort mostly it's about tribal signaling you're showing off your allegiance to the tribe the left literally uses the term ally, and your quality as an ally is judged on the basis of your unquestioning compliance. Hard to get more tribal than that. And the right has their version as well of things that you are... Oh, God, there was a great um, article about uh, not politically correct, patriotically correct was <laughs> what it was called, that there are certain things that you can't say when you're on the right, even if you think them, because then all, all the people on your side will be like, are you one of those hippies, liberal tards that... Uh, yeah." Because arguments are soldiers and, or yeah. because, yeah, arguments are soldiers and conversation is war, right? Right. So uh, anything that you say that, that is the least bit besmirching of your own side, if you're like, hey guys, maybe slow down here for a second, then it's like, oh my God, he's fighting against us. He's shooting our own soldiers in the back. Get him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, I think, I don't, I don't really know the way to approach that without getting too into it other than like just to not care. But it, assuming that you do care, which a lot of people care about stuff, maybe I'm weird in that I don't. Uh, then, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what the remedy is for that. Maybe being aware of the fact that like, it's okay to say your side can do better Maybe or that, you know, just being willing to talk with other people. Yeah. And not shit on them and realize that you don't have to 
You don't have to convert everyone all the time. Just talk with people and have a civil conversation. They're humans too. Even if they may be wrong, being wrong is not a sin. Relating to that, I really enjoyed the uh, recent episode on Sam Harris's podcast with uh, Christian something. I forget his last name. Oh, Paolini? The the uh, ex-Hitler Youth guy, right? Christopher Paoloni was the author of the uh, Inheritance Cycle uh, (laughs) book series. Who? Oh, I met him at DCC. He's the (laughs) nicest motherfucker you'll ever meet. Not the white supremacist then. No, 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 no. (laughs) So Christopher on the the Sam Harris podcast was a reformed uh, neo-Nazi. And uh, it was a very intense conversation it was a lot of fun um he had been out for 20 years you know out of the movement and he's been writing books against it and helping other people escape that culture um but man as far as you know reaching out and talking to people uh that was one of the the themes that he's trying to push yeah and it was a very very good conversation yeah would you like to sound like you were gonna jump in say something kind of actually makes me think about some of the things i went through with uh, tom people back home uh, with the idea of conversation and so but what I mentioned to you in a message mm-hmm. about regarding keeping this the conversation about last week's podcast, you know, privilege works well for consciousness raising of the majority. I don't know if you touched on this yet. Not really. Probably not. No. But you can, you don't get to punch sideways like if you're going to you don't have as you mentioned like you don't have you know a Jewish female punching you know Hispanic female punching. And an African-American female punching, you know, a gay um, Native American male. This doesn't work. It only, it only functions well for bringing to the attention of the majority, majoritarian uh, groups in society, their attention. So this idea of conversation is it back to my, the Trump thing um, or dealing with people back in West Virginia and in Appalachia more generally – is getting past the idea that we have to have debates and we have to win. Mm-hmm. We have actually conversation and the point is to build communi- to build community. And so there's no point in winning if you lose the community in the process. And I like the con- what you said about uh, conversation being war. It doesn't have to be. I mean, like it, it can be intense, but it could also be just general bonding. Mm-hmm. For for clarification, that's a popular quote from a less wrong blog post or from a less long less wrong blog post series on uh, politics of the mind killer. So that 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 particular line's repeated a lot. So it's sort of tongue in cheek. I didn't. Right. That I'm, wasn't me. I'm just in the one least you mentioned it, and I sure. liked it. Uh, and so that's I just I don't know I have a hard time with the way we talk about privilege because I think what you were when I came into in the middle of was what you were saying um, about. There's the academic use, and then there's the application. Mm-hmm. And we move back and forth between them without actually having – there's too much slipperage. Slipperage? Is word? Sli- slippage. Slippage. Too much slippage. And that's where it gets problemsome for me. Uh, and talking to people all the time about this issue, uh, like what, you, what you're bringing up in last week also, is that telling an, you know, a white Appalachian male mm-hmm. that, that he's privileged is missing a lot of the intersectionality of what that person goes through. And, and what's also funny to me is when you get in the intersectionality is that Ayn Rand brought this stuff up. Really? She talked about the greatest minorities, the individual. And if you continue breaking down this identity politics, pre-identity politics, she, as much as I'm not an Ayn Rand fan, but <laughs> when a woman hits something, you gotta, you know, but mainly, yes, that idea of um, following every different group you could fo- possibly fall into. 
And then at the end of the day, you're going to be just the individual you are. And this, in, uh, I guess my last thought on this would be, did you ever read the philosophy? I think it was by Nigel Nigel. I don't have to say his last name. Um, called, Probably not. It's, it was back in like the 70s called What's It Like to Be a Bat? That was Thomas Nagel. Nagel. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you have read that one, right? Yeah. It's okay. a short essay. It's yeah, worth it's, reading. It's very short. But the main concept was, at least my takeaway uh, years ago, was it? We'll never know what it's like to be a bat, as a bat knows to be, how it is to be a bat. We only know as a human how a human would interpret interpret interpret, <laughs> interpret being a bat. And I think that we should also understand that as a person, I will only understand a female or an African-American or a Native American or someone who doesn't speak English as a primary language, a person who didn't go to college, only through my experience of trying to empathize. And so much of our arguments and so much of our communication is based on the assumption that you will understand me completely. You will hold my assumptions. And that's where I think the concept of privilege, the concept of conversation as war gets muddy. Uh, so is it, those aren't true. We, we don't, we, people do not understand my assumptions. They do not, I only know what I know because of what I've read and what I've seen. Uh, and I can only touch the differences of other people's lives, you know, through analogies. And we know how bad those can be for understanding the world. Yeah. So the reason we brought you here today, uh, we should. That's actually a good segue. Yeah. Uh, reaching, uh, reaching across to talk to people. We should introduce you because I don't think we did yet. You are Joshua. I am Joshua. Are you okay going with Joshua on the podcast? I am. Okay, great. <laughs> and that reminds me, uh, you know, anything that you want us to take out, if you think of it a couple days later, shoot, shoot one of us a message or probably Yashua you know, already in touch. And, you know, there'll be no gotchas, no, you said it, sorry, it's going out, there's, you know, whatever you want is good. So, um, if you're like, you know what, I regret saying this thing or something or whatever. Um, yeah, do you want to just do like an intro? Yeah, we'll, Joshua, we'll, the we'll, reason... We'll time um, warp back and start the podcast and do the thing. The reason I wanted Joshua on the podcast is because uh, we over did, the we past... We do like the welcome to the Bayesian conspiracy thing. We'll do that at the end. Okay. Okay. The uh, the reason we um, oh right uh, over the past few months I saw a number of posts on Facebook of yours where you kind of went into what do I want to say went into deep cover uh, went back no. into into Trump country basically and really because you you originally were from Alabama right no no not Alabama West Virginia West Virginia. Which is even more Trump country. Okay, okay. I was going to say... Isn't that like the coal mine place? Yeah. 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 Well, but it's more of the... You know, give an example real quick is that all 55 counties went Trump. Okay. And in the primaries, all 55 counties on the Democratic side went Bernie. Okay. So, so there, there's no there, Hillary yeah. love. Yeah. So it is completely Trump. And, went, so. and yeah, you you uh, got out, I'm a th I believe, and went to college somewhere. Got out as in... Well, the story was I uh, wanted to be a musician, so I went to Atlanta first. I, so I went from a town with uh, two traffic lights, and one was at a three-way because there was a gas station. Okay. So 1,600 people at most at the time, graduating class of 69 kids, and I take off for a town that has, I don't know, let's say 1,000 traffic lights. <laughs> At least, six, at least six, <laughs> at least six, you know, lanes going in on eighty-five, mm -hmm. and so my car was just rattling the entire time. So, point being, it was a, it was a world change, and I knew I wanted to be in a city. I knew I needed to be where the action was because when I was uh, in high school, middle high school, I was like tenth you know, or eleventh grade, this guy came in. Actually, was a friend of 
Willie, well, he actually owned Willie Nelson's ex-wife's guitar. Hmm. He was a songwriter, and I and I went. I, I volunteered to help the FFA, you know, do this big dinner so I could get to meet this man. What's and, FFA? Future Farmers of America. Okay. And uh, that is something. It's that, very big it, where I'm from. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, having been raised in Denver my whole life, I would not have known those acronyms. Yeah. You, know, it's, you, know, you, you're, you get hogs. You know, the school sponsors it. You raise them, or not just hogs, but cattle, beef, whatever it may be. Uh, and you then you slaughter at the end of the year. Wow. And you have a big cell. I mean, there's also, the t- you, we adopt highways. We learn how to deal with, uh, you know, just general maintenance of a farm, but just agriculture on an, on an industrial level, too. Okay. There's classes in it. Yeah. Uh, so, more of the point was this, is it, this guy told me, I, I, I waited around to the very end of this, this dinner and the speech that he gave, and I said, I want to be a songwriter. I want to be a musician. And he said, that, well, you can't hunt tigers with no tigers to be found. And that meant you had to go to go to Nashville or L.A. or someplace that was that people were writing songs and playing music. And stumbled across Atlanta had a music scene that you know better to be a, a big fish in a small pond type of thing early on. So so with that, and then I did that for a year, and that was for the purpose of conversation. Uh, I was there for being a musician, going to music school, and I found myself, but you know, but in the evenings speaking with. You know, bassists and drummers from all different levels in the program. And the thing musicians talk about more than anything else, politics and religion. And it's so, not what I would have expected musicians yeah, to talk that's about. That's what we talk about, politics and religion. And there's one dude to talk about baseball. But okay. I'm, a, I was a, I'm a Mets fan, so I don't care about the Braves. So with that, I found myself saying, well, back, you know, where I'm from or, you know, where I'm back home, we do this. And... One day, this bass player said, "Well, son, we ain't back home," and with, you know, with an accent and uh, so on. And I, it was really a moment of, like I want to have an opinion. So I went to college. I, le- I dropped out of music school to go to get a four-year degree so I could have an opinion mm-hmm. because I felt that I wasn't informed enough. And so conversation led me to realize how much I was missing in communicating with other people. And then I went to, went to undergrad, uh, did did a bunch of different you know. Cross this whatever classes interested me took that kind of thing, but I, gra- I eventually graduated with a, my degree in economics uh, and two minors just shy of majors with in English and history. And then I'm, I moved. I went to D.C., uh, worked in think tank, and then moved out here for grad school in economics. Nice. So that's how I'm out here. That's how, and then and so when I went back home, yeah, this was uh, about a year after, less than a year, ten months after Trump had been elected. Yes, actually, it was November. Okay. Uh, so, but as far as we can, yeah, inaugurated. Yeah. Uh, so I went back home for seven weeks. I, I was lo- I was fortunate to be able to work remotely, and uh, my grandmother was having some health issues, and so I went uh, back home, stayed with her, uh, and helped her get to the hospital and back and forth. But so I was like, you know, the one thing I found with Trump was how much even I misunderstood the people I grew up with. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were like, these are my people. I mean, like, I, I listen to the same music still. I mean, I, I still listen to country music, not stuff radio, but like, you know, the, the 90s and so on. And, but you know, we listen, I, the, the metal music, watching these guys on Facebook who are metalheads are these huge Trump supporters and they're gun guys now. And I'm like, where did this happen? You know, where were the, the women who were the spoken members of our class voted Trump? Like, what's going on? Like, things didn't line up in my mind. And so 
And I found myself getting very humble by the process. I spent the part of the five months after Trump's getting elected pretty much just like, you know, laying around the house, not reading anything. <laughs> like, I was just like, like, give me a shelter. <laughs> but, but with that, because I actually, um, get, actually give a prognosis of this. So I read, I read quite a bit. And so the year 2015, I read uh, 67 books for that year. And then, and then went, up until Trump got elected, I had 45, 46 read. And then in the next five months, I did not complete a single book. It was that kind of emotional impact. Mm. And so when I went back home, um, basically I start hashtagging like report from rural America or something of that nature. And just asking people not, and it, was, it wasn't about like, I need to win an argument. It wasn't about understanding the statistics or saying, here, look at these numbers or here is an ec- you know, textbook economics. It was, tell me your narrative. Explain to me why you believe the way you believe. And what are your examples? And, and you don't, don't be antagonistic. Uh, and I think the one thing that when you first was actually an issue over uh, the me, regarding Me Too movement and sexual harassment in the workplace, I think that was the first time you commented okay. to me about, about any of this. Okay. Uh, if you want to hear a little bit about that. Um, I didn't see this exchange. So is there anything to dive into there that's not too far derailing? No, there's no real exchange. It was just more I posted a I posted a thing about some what a, a quote from a woman I spoke to, yeah, and was, he mentioned like we should talk when you get back type yeah. of thing, and, and we, we haven't talked yet. <laughs> not on this, not on this topic. Yeah, yeah. Right on. Um, and so basically, what I found was talking to some of these women, particularly who work in the poultry plants or the cabinet factories around my area, was one thing that was mentioned like, you know, the women are just as bad, if not worse, than the men when it comes to sexual harassment. Now, in as in harassing other harassing men or harassing other women, both. Okay, and it's actually because uh, this woman actually said that uh, that she's like I don't you know, she's very much like I don't care if you're a lesbian I don't, and that's how she prefaces it. But when I put a ring on my finger, behave like the men and don't t- don't start you know trying to entice me to cheat on my husband. The le- the women were not stopping when it came to that aspect of her coworkers, but when you bring in just uh, the male, a, male, a new uh, manager or you bring in another guy. I mean, I worked in these plants for two summers. And I kind of have to verify what she said is, seems pretty accurate. I mean, even when I worked in the hospital, I worked in a mental hospital in, in my undergrad. The women were very aggressive. Hmm. A new guy shows up and it's like, I want that one. And, they, and they're at a lunch table like choosing. And they'll, they're very physical. They want, they'll touch you without, without asking. They will entice you. And even if you have a kid at home and a wife, I mean, there was, and my grandfather actually told me, because I mentioned this to him, that this conversation I had, and he was like, he's like, yeah, you know, we actually had this new guy come in, a manager brought in from corporate. And the uh, vice president, or, okay, but not vice president, but one of the upper management had to go to the lunchroom and tell all these women do not. This man has three kids at home. He's here to work. And so what the point is, even knowing the statistics, and this is the point I'm trying to get to, is even knowing the statistics about sexual harassment in the workplace, it doesn't line up with these people's you know, reality. What mm-hmm. they're seeing is something different. And so what I learned in this is I, you can't win an army with statistics. It's about narrative. It's about making people feel heard, and it's about making, and, and, and the thing also is funny, it's like, not funny, but 
none of them are advocating for it. Like no one said we need to keep it the same. No one says we need, you know, men and women should be able to, you know, sexually harass anyone in a workplace. It should be a sexual harassment-free zone. No one's disagreeing with the same thing the Me Too movement's asking for. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they, they make a narrative, or the movement has made a narrative about women only, these women are responding with, I'm not a victim, and, I, and also women are just as bad. When are we going to take care of them? And that's what fascinated me, was mm. just hearing these kind of stories. On, on a brief tangent, you said something which, which surprised me, and which I guess now I'm connecting the two things that they might be related. You said that uh, the women that you talked to said there was impossible to find any good men anymore. Oh, okay, that's a, that's a different topic. I say it's not a different topic, but I count that as a separate point. Because this runs across the spectrum, also, voting. Um, I, so I'm going to do a, a shout-out to my ex-wife. Um, <laughs> she went to Georgetown for a master's. Uh, when I met her, she, uh, both she and I had a undergrad campus presence. People knew who we were because uh, of our activities in different organizations. She was president of Lambda. She was the president of the Women's uh, Studies of Students Association. So she had a very much a, a known record uh, on campus as a very liberal, progressive-minded person. And here comes this boy who, at the time, was identified as a libertarian. And not saying maybe I don't identify myself, but other people identify me uh, as that. A guy who debated, a guy who wrote columns in the in the, the campus paper, and so so uh, she's actually back home in in Huntington, West Virginia, where she has a um, uh, urban farm for addiction recovery oh. to help deal with the opioid addiction and deal with the job training skills, dealing with uh, yoga and meditation, even using was it Tai Chi. Using, using a martial art of some sort to help men and women both. I mean, she's working with uh, the, uh, the, oh God, I don't want to get the name wrong. Golden Girls is a home for, for abused women and so on, neglected right. women. So she's involved in that. That's what she's helping with. And so here's that woman on the left. And then I go to people who I went to high school with, home, some who are homeschooled and very much a conservative, you know, you know, the world needs to be go back to the day of, you know, claw. Uh, very much a God and guns kind of thing. Well, yeah, very God and guns. But I'm going to say it's almost a neo-Luddite. Like she doesn't have like, she doesn't have Wi-Fi in her home. She doesn't have like, she has electricity, but there's no heat. It's done through wood. Whoa. Yeah. yeah her dad's a cabinet maker. I mean, these, okay, these, she's a wonderful human. But the point is that she's on the, she's on the, on the right. That's what I'm getting to. And so... The thing I found was the one on the right first said, like, where have all the men gone? And I was like, where have all the men gone? And I was pondering, because I'm going through my mind, like, well, there's masculinity and there's men and males. There's a lot of male bodies. And so going through that process of what do you mean exactly? And what she's meaning is men who work, men who provide, men who uh, are, are dominant in the way that's appealing. Obviously not ones who uh, you know, batter and abuse, but there is a certain type of masculinity that she's attracted to. And then I go and I talk to people across, across the spectrum from some independents and people who don't vote at all to, to eventually over here, the genie. And I said that to her, I should have mentioned Rachel. I said, I said, Rachel said, where have all the men gone? She's like, oh, God, that's so true. She's mm. like, where have they gone? She has no idea either. And that's the point of – because I want to give the point. Jeannie is in um, Cabell County, which they actually – if you go on the Netflix, they'll find a documentary called Heroin, which the, the E is in parentheses at the end. Okay. It's about the opioid addiction. It's actually in Huntington, which is my 
and Jeannie's undergrad hometown. Mm-hmm. And that's where we went to school in Marshall. And you follow these three women um, through, the, through this battle. And one is the fire chief. And the things that's pointed out is that 11% of that county has been or are on opioids or, or heroin. Um, the amount of money that's going to, I mean, like it's something in, in the millions. You know, like I think it's almost, I think it's six, I think it's a hundred million dollars, something goes through that a year. And so what's fascinating is that a lot of these men aren't available because there are other things going on. There's a lack of education, but there's also a lack of motivation. And, and this leads into a whole other topic that I find with other men is where the men I do talk to back home who are like, they're nervous. They're scared to talk to women. They're, they're right. scared of social interaction. Because you might very well accidentally sexually harass someone or something, and then you're well, fucked for life. Well, there's no... Well, it's, like, it's, it's not that you accidentally sexually harass someone. It's that you were joking, you thought, flirting around or something, and it turns out that you're a monster. Well, it's more of... Well, yes. So the point, I think, goes back to... There's a book, and I, can, I, I do not condone the book because I've never read it, but I heard an interview on like, NPR. Uh, it's called Manning Up. A woman wrote it about her like kids. And the one thing she highlighted was in the 1950s, men, did, first of all, men aren't trained to understand other people on a personal level. The society has just failed to teach us interpersonal relationships, which they need to, and we, and we should advance that cause. But in the 1950s and 40s, there was an expectation, this is what you do as a man. Women might not get what they want, but they knew what they're getting. And as you go through women liberation and women started becoming more individual, and so you have some women who are into Tantra and some are into BDSM, and you have others who are, you know, as far as on the sexual level, but then you have others who they want to be stay home moms and others who want to be corporate, you know, um, leaders. And all that's great and beautiful and, uh, you know, advantageous in many respects, but it now puts a situation where these men don't know how to respond. There's no protocol for them to go out there and interact with these ladies. And this is what more what uh, my friend was mentioning uh, was that there are, you know, I don't know if I can say hi because I don't know how to say hi now. And of course, this is, you know, then I hear from, you know, the, from my academic female friends that, you know, victimhood, who, you know, just, it's like, honestly, can we just acknowledge that people just don't know how to interact and communicate? It's not for fear of being sexually harassing. It's just for fear of not knowing how to be turned down. I, I, I see I, these, these posts sometimes by a particular friend I'm thinking of that is like this, uh, this guy came over to me and was trying to buy me a drink or something. And I'm just sitting here drinking my, my coffee and reading a book. I'm like, what? Stop creeping on me, you asshole, right? I'm like, okay, that's fair. She didn't want to be bothered. And then like a week or two later, I also see the, the same friend saying, no one ever asks me out or hits on me. I am so alone. I'm like, mm-hmm. the, these two might be related. People are afraid to approach people now because they don't want to be the creeper that everyone is like, oh, watch out for that guy. He'll come over and start annoying you when you don't want it. Oh, God. I forget. I'm trying to think of how I phrased it to her. But mainly the, 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 the issue was, how do I know that? What I'm doing is being perceived as flirtatious versus being perceived as uh, aggressive. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you won't know until she likes you. 
And that's what's that's the trouble. And that's thing. not worth the risk oftentimes. And that's and so this gets You in, don't want to be aggressive so much that you don't bother with the flirting. You don't you don't want to be the aggressive asshole. No one does. So there's two thinking economically about this, there's actually two books that come to mind. Uh one is uh read it years ago called uh, More Sex is Safer Sex. Okay. And it's really more of a theoretical thought experiment, but the idea is that if you want safer sex, you know, let's take the, let's say there's two kind of guys. There's the guy who he would like to have sex, and he's you know, and he's you know, want to do it safe and wants to want to be respectful. And then here is this other dude who just doesn't even want to use protection, just want to go out with anybody, and will in night after night with different people. And then in the middle, you have this other lady who she'd prefer guy A. But if guy A leaves the market, she will give in to a guy B every so often. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find ways to incentivize guy A to enter the market. And what we're finding, or at least what I'm seeing from talking to people back in rural Appalachia, and even around here even, is that there is not that incentive. Everything is a disincentive mm-hmm. for the good guy. Well, they're trying to disincentivize guy B's from being like guy B's. But it doesn't stop guy B's, and it does stop guy A's from even showing up. Yeah, and you, so you're, you're the pool in which you're you're surrounding. I mean, you're getting. Uh, <laughs> Although now I feel like the dickhole who's like telling women what their problem is. No, <laughs> and I I don't want to be in that position. I although I do want to say, do you think this this idea that there are no good men left is what leads to the aggressiveness that the you see in from some of these women in workplaces like when you do see the one guy who looks like he might be a good guy you got to jump and get on him right yeah oh, that makes sense um i'm not sure I, exactly how t- how strong that is i did not i did not speak to anyone directly on that level to have uh but that makes sense to me though and you're looking because you're always out looking in those areas looking for stability i mean remember actually think about the first episode maybe of mad men like if you play your cards right, you know, Peggy, you know, you'll be living out in the, you know, the hills. I, I couldn't even finish the first episode because it was so fucking misogynistic. I wanted to throw up. I, I think that's part of the theme of the show. I know, I know it is, well, but it, it that, that is a thing that is, I hate so much. I could not swallow it and I had to stop watching. See, I'm going to get shit on because I couldn't finish the first episode because I got bored. So, okay. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> well, I mean, like some people like horror and other people are like, I know that this is what a horror movie is and I can't watch it and that was the same kind of thing I couldn't watch Mad Men and the sad thing is that's my favorite TV show of all time <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's world renowned I, well, I mean people that I'm close to really liked it but yeah. it's just I couldn't get into it now I feel like I'd have to catch up on a lot and they're long episodes well, I'm you, lazy right I mean it's like getting caught up on Highlander so <laughs> like what getting yeah. caught up on Highlander right yeah I, I was like there's you know you got all the movies to watch but also you have to watch the seven seasons sorry six seasons of the show and then there's a seventh spinoff season and you gotta watch highlander 2 which is widely regarded as the worst movie but ever. there's actually three mm-hmm. or four different versions yeah of it. you gotta watch the first one. Oh my god no they're aliens no, no, no. <laughs> wait what <laughs> you don't watch the first one the, the theatrical <laughs> release was god awful but i i do like the renegade version which is the director's cut and then also the producers came up with one and there's a couple things i disagree with but nonetheless let's get off the movie <laughs> But I will say Highlander is probably one of the most influential things in the way I view being a man. So like, we might we'd be interested to come back to that maybe we'll, at some point. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah. I've never seen any Highlander. <sighs> so sad. First uh, one has Sean Connery in it. Okay. Yeah. He's only on the set for seven days. Oh. Yeah. He was not in much of it. But so, he, so here's a Do Scott. you mean Highlander the movie or Highlander the TV series? Both. Yes. Oh, okay. But mainly the show has a lot of aspects to uh, understanding um, the right amount of temperament that I find, at least for me, to want to exude. 
So, but with that, let's moving back to this point of uh, what were you even saying? Um, I don't recall, but I do have some things I want to touch on before. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay, like, somewhere along the way, we can edit. So yeah. So these are some things that you have said over the past couple months. I think which I just started <laughs> jotting down because I was like, I'm gonna have them on my podcast, so I want to hit on That's some of these. That's hilarious. Yeah. Someone actually pays that much attention to my Facebook, other than either agreeing or disagreeing. I mean, right. like, openly on the on the forum. Um, okay. The so we're gonna hit two facts and a statement that you made in in quick succession, and then we can hit uh, talk about these. One was that non-Hispanic white males make up thirty one percent of the U.S. population, but count for seventy percent of suicides. In the late nineties, the risk of a non-college white person dying in his or her early fifties was thirty percent less than that of his or her black counterpart. But by 2015, the risk was 30% more than his or her black counterpart. Yeah. And then you said, we live at a time where the left cannot fathom how everyone does not like the things they like and value the things they value. And the right preemptively expects for the things they like to be belittled, trashed, or looked down on, and the things they value to be judged quaint, old-fashioned, backwards, or stupid. My friends on the left do not see how they blindly fueled the rise of Trump, let alone continue to do so. Are these related things? Oh, the facts and then this? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not... They're likely, yes, because I'm not going to tie them together right now. But yeah, they were kind of spread out. They were spread out. They weren't... Yeah. That wasn't one post. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. That was the, over but a series of weeks. The issue of the facts is to understand that the type of men that are from where I'm from, uh, to realize that we do have issues with suicide. We do have issues with depression. And... You, uh, we got, we look at life expectancy, and that's the thing. The two things with life expectancy. I actually just came across this the other day. One, of the, the, a couple of the counties in my state, their life expectancy has decreased to the point where it is now equal to Ethiopia. Wow! And that's something that I don't think that people back to the privilege a little bit is that it's hard to tell someone who has a life expectancy of Ethiopia who doesn't have a septic system because you know available to them when these kids go to you know besides when they go to school i mean they don't have the type of education to you know not education but the, the opportunities to have a life that's going to put them on a path to getting out of that area they're stuck there forever yeah, and, and so, they know it yeah and they a lot of them know it and so what's so with that said is more of I'm, my frustration is that people don't understand exactly what's going on at least back to statistically, uh, with rural America in the sense that there is a there is a male like uh, divide, as in like you know, there's a group of males who are getting healthier, and there's a group of males who are getting poor, who are getting less healthy or getting poor. And the main thing is with the line about the white men living you know, thirty like what was the years again in nineteen in the late nineteen nineties. Yeah, so night with so night late nineteen nineties, I had a thirty thirty you know. Pers- Thirty percent less chance of dying than their black counterpart yeah. at, at the certain age, like early fifties. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has a lot to do with drug usage, particularly with opioids, is what's doing a lot of that. But to underscore, that's not a tie lifting all boats, and that's where it's fr- where a lot of people looking around, like who had issues where uh, with not affirmative action, but like exactly, but the policies that kept telling like these people who were disenfranchised. And you're not watching yourself get better. You're watching yourself getting worse in response. And that breeds some sort of anger, and I would imagine. And yeah, and they, there's a sense of being left behind, leaving, feeling ignored. 
And that's something that's really fascinating when you talk to people in like Medow County or Clay County, some of the poor counties in my state, or even getting further south even, that they don't expect a politician to come through to save them. They don't expect a politician to even know they exist. They do feel that they're on their own. And so back, it's a little bit more about this community thing is that the aspect of this and going to the friend who talked about not knowing how to discuss things with women is that he, the other thing he said, besides not know, having a protocol for, uh, for communicating with, with the opposite sex is there's no place to get together anymore. There's not a dance hall. There's not a, there's not a nice place to have dinners or there's not a place to go to sports games. These things are falling to the side. And what I'm finding from talking to people is that a lot of the, uh, behavior a lot of choices particularly when it comes to voting is that these men who are when you're working at a plant be it a you know deliveries or uh, you know be poultry be it you know, cabinets be whatever the you know they're making i mean there's you know we got so many different uh, plants in um, operation in west virginia we make van shoes we also make you know uh coal uh, was it bar, um coal no, well, we do make coal. We, we, <laughs> we, we dig it up, but I was like, the uh, charcoal. We make charcoal, and so there's a host of things going on there. But as far as the job, actually, a lot of these men, and the concern comes from not just about their own livelihood. Some of them have like made things, like you know, to go on into uh, other occupations. A lot of niches. A lot. Like I have a friend who's doing leather work now. He got out of out of work, and he now had to figure out a thing to do. So he's doing. He's selling leather bags and leather belts and. Um, out of a shed, and you have other people who are do, making knives, putting your custom knives, selling it, and they're they're using the internet to do a lot of this too. So, do they they see the benefits in one way, but they're concerned about their community. They're and when and so when people talk, even for me, when I heard the line like back with Trump was uh, make America great again, I did go to that liberal response like back when there was slavery and inequality, and you had high had high tariffs and strong unions to the degree that you were actually you know uh, slowing economic growth in places you had little say at the as a uh, part of the franchise well one of the perks of that that tagline was that great again can mean whenever they the listeners thinks it is right, right? so well, it's fake it's completely it's yeah. totally meant to you know let you may fill in the blanks and that's the thing when i did go to that liberal perspective i went with a lot of my where my academic friends were going to these people, they they're not asking for the racism back. They're not asking for um, even the same type of work. A lot of times, they're just asking for their communities. They're asking for a place that you could raise a kid without worrying about drugs, and some place where they can have uh, just a place, not just the main street, but a liveliness. Because my hometown, for an example, up until the uh, '80s, actually had uh, a bluegrass festival. Small town. But it was a place so you had big bluegrass names come through. My grandfather sat and talked to many of them. Hmm. And though he doesn't play an instrument, his love of music is what got me into playing music. You know, it was very much that like, like how can I get, you know, how can I encourage you, Josh, to pick up an instrument? Hmm. Um, and he had all these stories and he, he, knew, he knew what good music was. But, he went, but the point is you had a community for there. And then when I was there and you had, you had a certain family. That was available. They, they had the older generation that played music. Then, so I actually he took me out to uh, play with them on Saturday nights. This at a guy's trailer. He had a microphone set up. The whole kitchen was moved out to be a concert, you know, little stage. And they played traditional country music. And so, so then on the week on on Sunday, and then and then on their nephews and and niece would play bluegrass on Saturday. And the con- oh, sorry on Sunday. On Sunday, and, and now there's nothing like that and anymore. That, and that's, there was this one family that held that bluegrass together from the '80s. 
where you had a community of rock bands playing and through the ages and then they then they left and then you had the bluegrass that hung on, hung on and then now that's gone and so and i think it seems like part of what you were why i tied in that other comment was that it's not just that there is no future for them and life keeps getting worse and it seems that nobody cares at all it's not just that nobody cares they don't expect people to care it's that the the people when they do talk about them denigrate them they're like get out of your shitty town stop being a yeah. racist assholes you know it, get it, with the times or you deserve to be left behind like the you deserve to be shat on thing is right I think and what it's, it's, so that's a lot what the left is the left can be good at that is because they're very good at moralizing things right and well i mean so is the right at times right but, but the thing the but, moral majority well, <laughs> but in this case talking about the particular this particular group of people about you know you, you know, what Hillary was like yeah she talked about um, helping bring in new jobs you know and, and retraining but she forgot the identity aspect of community you know a lot of that retraining would go to people who don't have the same skill set you know so we're actually like yeah, we can bring in jobs but we're not gonna, we're not going to have the same workers filling those jobs and so a lot, and there's that big concern about brain drain and honestly if there were so, you know southern uh, Virginia Northern Tennessee, uh, West Virginia, Western Pennsylvania. They're in Ohio now. There's kid, if their kids are going somewhere, they're going to Cincinnati, Columbus. They're, going, they're moving the – and this is also why you know, Ohio is booming. In they have, they have a, fair, a governor who is working well enough to, you know, with promoting R&D, uh, promoting uh, job growth, you know, retraining, and being very active on that – uh, as a um, – a pro job person, a pro retraining person, but giving opportunities to people. And the brain drain is not from rural Appalachia to the big cities. You know, I'm a rare one going this far West. They're just going across the river because they want to be close to home. They want to be close to their families. So with your um, current econ degree, is there, and I, I realize this is a tangent and we are getting off the, the Trump thing, but is there any hope for these small areas to be revitalized or is it just an area of of america that is dying and everyone is going to eventually have to move to cities like well, is there there's really nothing in the modern economy that can be made of value in those small areas now right uh, that's not no not really I mean, transportation costs has gone down so dramatically i mean this is also why we you know, back in the late 1800s early 1900s uh you had to have your steel mills in the middle of a city like pittsburgh oh uh, now we can we can put those outside of towns. I mean, they, we can put them 30, 40, 50 miles, if not even two hours away from their source. I mean, my uh, hometown's a poultry town. Uh, we have two poultry plants, middle of nowhere. I mean, seriously. I mean, when I was a kid, I had to go to a movie, uh, to go to an actual theater, to a mall. It meant to go to Maryland, which meant to get, drive an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. And that was a big thing. Uh, to go to a good hospital was to go to Virginia, and that was another hour and 15 minutes. We had, we had a regional hospital, but if you well, were going to deliver babies To go there, to a good hospital, i got to drive for an hour, too. It's just that it's only 20 miles away from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a great distance. I mean, you're driving it's, you know, 65 miles an hour to these places, still not getting there in time. Um, but keeping more of the points that these... Uh, no, that's actually not the pro a lot of the problem. The thing, there's mindset issues. My grandfather's mayor of my hometown. And understanding the importance of systems, and I, we may get around to that later, because uh, I, I think in terms of systems a lot, because of economics. <laughs> but with it, he, uh, my town, my, my county is like the second fastest growing county in the state. 
and it has a lot to do with my hometown. The other incorporated town in the, in the county has a part-time officer. It's dying. And it's dying because it was completely agricultural, and they, they refused to do anything other than hospitality. And they eventually lost the hospitality. <laughs> no offense but, uh, if they're listening. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, th- th- so, I don't think our podcast has that kind of reach. <laughs> <laughs> but with that said, my, uh, my hometown is industrial. It's very cosmopolitan. We have a lot of uh, influx of Hispanics um, uh, from all over Latin America from the caribbeans and so it's actually very it's actually a very beautiful thing to look at that in many respects so what i uh, bring it is that my grandfather is very thoughtful on what his role as a mayor and also understanding the fact that the, the charter for the town is set up in a way that the mayor doesn't have a lot of power it's it's the board uh, or the council i mean sorry it's the council but the people have voted in consistently people in onto this uh, council who are actually fairly educated with a lot of experience in management they uh you know so there's not a person on that degree on that board that doesn't have a degree less sorry my grandfather has the lowest amount of degrees on that board or the council excuse me and that's uh that's that's what's funny though is, is he still pro-trump no my, my grandfather he, he's he's very lukewarm Okay, uh, but even though your your town's doing very well, it sounded like they were still very much in the the Trump. Category. No, the town is yes. Yeah, but my my, my grandfather's a little different breed. Um, okay, but what I'm getting to is this: that thinking in terms of who's actually running the town mm-hmm. and keeping it on pace, they're and and they're making decisions that are not anti-business but not pro-business. They're making decisions that how do we work together as partnerships? Because the poultry plants together, both of them make up 85% of the water usage. The town produces all the water for the region. Uh, and they sell, it, they sell it at cost to anyone outside of the, count, the town. So the making points here is that they're thinking systematically. And so when you get to, when you get to Trump, this is where a lot, a lot of people are not concerned so much with uh, the Trump that the left knows. That's the other thing that's very important. Yeah. So we think in terms of systems, but uh, with how towns are run and my and so on. But wanting to keep on keep on the Trump thing a little bit more is that these people are yeah they know Trump has faults. They know that he he tweets. <laughs> they, they they're not oblivious to it. But that's not the Trump they're concerned with. So this is what I really wanted to dive into, and I haven't really said anything in the last thirty five minutes. Um, this I want to understand the. Um, so like for really quick, my background is like, I have immediate family members who voted Trump and they voted not for the, you know, the reality TV show host, the, you know, proud, I've never read a book cause I'm already so smart or the, you know, the flagrant sexual offender. They voted for the guy that in one case, you know, wasn't Hillary Clinton, no matter what. Oh, yeah. And oh, then, that's a big thing. And the, the other one was just the, well, he's not a politician. That's what makes him good. And people liked that too, because they, they, you know, or at least in my, in my small circle or my small window into this world that, you know, uh, what a politician has done for us lately. They fucked everything up for the last 50 years. We, we need to shake things up. And that, is that anything like the common narrative in real Trump land or? Well, there, there's some appeal to the non-politician aspect, but most of the, but you talk to these people and they understand that you need people who know how things work. Uh, they, I think more of them had 
better view of what his cabinet is going to look like. That the, you know, the, a, lot of t- a lot of things I hear about where I'm from often. Excuse me. Um, something I hear a lot from where I'm from is it's really about who you surround yourself with. That's the big thing. And they assumed Trump was going to have better people. And honestly, some of them are not bad people. I'm actually kind of lamenting McMaster's leaving, keeping a little bit more sane, you know, uh, more a little bit more sanity around. But at the same time, there are some issues with with McMaster's too. So, but with that said, is that an example of where they weren't looking for Trump as being a being a non politician alone? They were looking for someone who seemed to come and talk to them and t- not talk down them. And this is the th- read that second part there about the belittling. That from that comment, please. We live at a time where the left cannot fathom how everyone does not like the things they like and value the things they value, and the right preemptively expects for the things they like to be belittled, trashed, or looked down on, and the things they value to be judged quaint, old-fashioned, backwards, or stupid. Yeah, and that's what I'm. The big thing that I find is that there's a not a, not the big thing, but a big thing is that the right is on defensive. The rural America is on defensive, and so someone who was sticking to the system. Regardless if it came from the system or not, that was really secondary. It was just someone who was not talking to, down to them, and Trump was not. He, much as he looked like a goofball being, you know, in, in my state with a you know coal miner's cap on and it didn't fit, and trying to look like he was shoveling out of a sandbox, that to be, should have been an insult, and that would have been an insult if Hillary did it. But Hillary would have come across as doing it out of mockery. Trump did, did it out of sense of praise. And that's what these people really respond to was not being talked down to for once. And and this is the, the I want the thing that also is clever. The end of clever is something I hear a lot. Hmm. Trump is the end of clever. And it, not you say the end of clever. Yeah. So let's talk about a more economic point of view. Is um, all the money that's offshore have to come back to be taxed? And look at you know uh, Google and Apple, um, for example. And they want to do a holiday. And Trump's a 10% tax rate on that. 10% is a nice round number kind of thing. It's, all, it's easy to comprehend at least. Paul Ryan comes out a few weeks later and says, no, it should be actually 12.5. Now you're like, wait a second. Where did you get that from? Five, so 10 is easy to understand. 12.5 is like, what math are you using? <laughs> and, and so the point is they want to cut, they, they, people are tired of being talked down to and lectured and preached to and whatever else. So with this, at least from you know, where I'm from, I mean, I don't think anyone likes any of that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and this will get to another point about this, how people, res- what led to this uh, reactionary state of the right or rural America. But the end of clever is very important. The idea, of like, let's cut out a bunch of access, even if it's going to be with a, you know, an axe or a chainsaw, and then in eight years we will then go back to rebuilding. They just want to gut the red tape. They want to. They they feel then even if we know we know economically, a lot of the regulations are actually beneficial. You know, for many things. Yes, there are some costs, but then they, the costs also a lot of times pay for themselves elsewhere. So we can look at these studies, but that's not the narrative these people have. And, I th- and that's this narrative, man, I'm, there's like 500 things in my mind right now to go from that direction. Um, but with narrative, it's horribly important to understand these people. And so the left often talks about um, they're voting against their own self-interests. You know, we're the ones wanting to give you good jobs. We want, you know, we government can give you these opportunities and redistribute through the tax system, give you benefits. How can you vote against your interest? 
Well, these people, if you, uh, and not just in Appalachia, but also in Louisiana, for example. There's a sociologist out of uh, California. She wrote a book called Strangers in Their Own Land. And what she really got to was that to them, and it's very true across rural America, businesses are not the enemy. They are the things that give you money to put food on the table for your kids. They are the saviors. And every time you add a regulation, you are making it harder for you to get an income. Every time government makes it makes you know mm-hmm. a regulation, it makes it hard for you to have an income. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're seeing. That's a narrative. Even if we know coal was actually you know going down long before Obama came in. The war on coal is very much, you know... Is that a big narrative out there? Oh, God, yes. I very much applaud my state on the fact that we have a lot of windmills. We've taken a route to do some version of alternative energy. Granted, windmills are not efficient in any meaningful sense. I mean, they are, you know, technology from like the, like what, the 1500s? <laughs> That's at best. I mean, like we're going to say, we'll give, you know, if not back in the, you know, the 1100s. Um, so they're not exactly the future. Uh, now that gets into a totally different issue with, with the alternatives, but, but I'm glad we're doing that. We're at least showing some aspect of having those kind of jobs available. And a lot of engineering electrician jobs are created with that. But the war on coal and that's is a very big narrative and the th- realizing that states have identities. When you're from a state, I never identify as a coal miner. I don't think of coal myself personally as an important thing. I mean, it's just, it's a fuel, it's an energy. But my grandmother is a coal miner's daughter. You know, my brother, my well, my uncles are coal miners. One's, one was a president of a coal company. Worked his way up from in high school digging coal to owning the company. And winning awards for environmental practices. Because you can do that too. Now, <laughs> uh, but... Um, so taking into account that I did come from a family of coal miners, but it was back in my grandmother's generation. It's with her siblings that I learned about these, going to family reunions with them. I'm not exactly someone who cares about the past. And this is my grandfather's influence. He's a very non-nostalgic person. And so that's what I learned from him was that that's a past energy. You know, gasoline, the combustion union should have been gone in the 70s to him. You know, we need to be moving into other technologies. But you know, he's also the guy who thinks that the worst thing the government ever did was you know, not fund NASA <laughs> at, the, at the same rate as it was during the 60s. So, and again, he's your a... Grand, he, your grandfather sounds like a cool guy. Oh, he, he, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anyone but, who thinks the space program doesn't earn enough, sounds to, that's a point in my book. <laughs> well, it's, he's a guy who thinks... Um, uh, okay, so I think my grandfather would have been a great economist, actually. Because when I was in seventh grade... There was a, we had to build a bridge in our little, we have a little river that goes through a little creek, a branch, whatever you want to call it. And through the middle of the town. And so we had, we built a bridge in like 94 and then come 97, we, we had to build a new one. And they're like, why? This is a waste of money. And so I'm here in seventh grade in a class and, a, and, I, and I'm in a group and this one kid made a statement about how wasteful it was. And my grandfather picks me up from school and we're driving across the bridge right after class. And I said something about why did we build this bridge? And I, and he's, and I said, we're talking about this in class. He said, did your teacher say it? And I was like, no, it was, you know, so-and-so. And he's like, oh, that's just his dad talking. 
And he goes through and he explains to me why we had to build the bridge, why it was based on an investment due to the fact that we had it. We were building a dike because we had a flood in 96, and thus we had to raise the bridge. And going through the steps and explaining there's multiple layers here. And so what happens a lot of times is people are stage one thinkers. It's what's directly in front of them. And so he uh, is very good at trying to think out these extra links. And so he sees NASA as a huge investment in technology. And it's, it's uh, because it's a spinoff. It's all about the spinoffs. And that's the same with funding research and R&D. I mean, this is a man who... Um, yeah, uh, we're, we're starting to run low on time. I was wondering, you posted, I think this was recently, about the populists just won again in Italy. Uh, they, <laughs> they did. They yes. And, and uh, you seem to... To you, you were saying something along the lines of no one seems to realize that this is a problem or what to do about it, or well, no people realize it's a problem. But uh, you were saying along like something along the lines of when will the uh, left wake up? And well, okay, yeah, so the, I I don't use the phrase the phrase wake up, but I, I, much as I like Sam Harris, that's a horrible book title. Okay, because uh, he he, he kind of stole it from Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck stole it from every other person before him. Hey, they stole it from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, we had a magazine called Awake. Uh, I'm just. I'm not. I don't, I don't know any of those other references, but I. I think the book "Waking Up" was about raising your consciousness through meditation. That that sounds somewhat appropriate, at least. For I that, think that "Waking usage. Up" has been a, a common metaphor ever since humans started waking up from sleep. Sure, so. and, 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 all, and all and all the kids these days are saying "woke" like it's some <laughs> yeah, woke, yeah. risen woke consciousness lit, level, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, all the things you gotta learn from you gotta go and like talk to your fourteen year old sister to figure out what they mean. Anymore. I learned I was old and I started using Urban Dictionary. So, <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck did she just say? Oh man, now I'm old. <laughs> so, so two things with the with the populist. Um, one, I agree with Nal Ferguson on this one that Trump is not a fascist, and the left have if they believe he is, they have misdiagnosed what they're up against. He's a right wing populist. Uh, which, you can be both, though. A lot of fascists start out with populism. Well, a lot, well, a lot of fascists. I mean, the, to the first po- fascist was a populist, right? Well, that was like the, the a fascist uh, appeals to certain populist instincts, but a populist, you know, at least in the American sense and most of you know European uh, as well, have been you know pretty much bared in their own weight of bad policy. You know, when we look it back to, you know, because the response to... Uh, well, it's not like populism is known for good policy either. No, it's it's all for feel goods. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the, where the issue is. Like, you know, the, there's no... There should never be a concern, well, in the long run about populism winning. You don't think? Well, I'm wishful thinking. <laughs> because <laughs> okay. the, well, the reason I say that is, on the Nile Ferguson perspective, is that bec- uh, there's no reason in the long run because the policies can't sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what does winning look like? Does winning look like a, a six million person genocide? That seemed like a populist, like wasn't, I mean, I'm not a historian, but I mean, that, that looks like a, it, if it wasn't, it, if it wasn't winning, it was certainly a, a hard uh, price to the populists losing, right? Right. I mean, ultimately, well, sure, Venezuela is going to go down in flames or whatever, but you don't well, want to get a, to well, Venezuela is a left wing populism. If, if, right, it, right. if we're going to diagnose as a populist, and there's other aspects of Venezuela that's the, you, you say in the long first. run populism can't win and okay that's fair but you don't want to go through the no, your no, country you don't want to go going down th- phase exactly no and this is where the progressive saved us in the late 1800s the progressive movement i look at the idea in the u.s back to systems the movements that created our institutions and the systems in which we operate under are basically two and that is the enlightenment mm-hmm. that created us as a country 
and in the, the basic institutional framework, and then the progressives who came in and built other institutions to buttress the Enlightenment. And these are the late 1800 progressives? Late 1800 about? progressives and early you know, 1900s. But I know the, nothing so, about them. I mean, they're, they're, they're basically the people who got water to the towns. They got they got crime down in the cities. They were the ones who made the you know, the Federal Reserve. They were the you know they were the ones who uh, insul- did an income tax that were able to finance you know improvements in the economy. Um, we should we should I would like to at some point if you have the time like just discuss do an episode on the the progressive history. Oh yeah, I I I'm a I'm a big fan of actually the radical republicans because the progressives were the republicans. And and after, that's when you look at Lincoln, Lincoln wasn't a conservative. Uh he, he might have been an opportunist at, at early stages, but he was you know, he came out of the progressive. I mean, you get in you look at the political writings leading up to the Civil War and you see the multiple parties that fell into the Republican party. They were pushing a pretty progressive agenda at the time. And then the the, the Republicans that followed after that were like the, the ones who were Get, you know, creating the middle class and getting crime down and getting water taken care of for cities. So what I'm getting to with the story is when you get – so, popu- so the, the, the left needs to be conscious of they once won this battle by being progressive. And the thing that right now – and I'm going to use Sam Harris and um, – I lost his name. Mazah uh, – uh, what do you, when British Muslim oh, reformer uh, Majid Nawaz, Majid, yeah, Majid, yeah, regressive. The, the the progressives and the regressives have not been dealt with yet, as far as parting the two. And this is where my issue with I don't want to get good. So um, every movement needs to have to regulate itself. And we can look at feminism gets a bad name because of the few bad feminists. Well, the feminism ha- as a movement needs to extricate these people from the movement and, and make a very hard line. That's not acceptable. And the same thing with progressives. Progressives need to realize regressives are in their fold and they need to get, you know move these people out of it. And they and a lot of them haven't yet come to that term yet. Surprisingly to me, I think it's. But uh, so with that. The, what I'm concerned with is that the left doesn't seem to really acknowledge one their solutions that they ha- they have in their back pocket to use, and they don't also understand how bad they're losing. Uh, I don't know the number as of right now due to the last special elections, but just last year, if you looked at the state houses and the and the governorships that were completely controlled by Republicans or by Democrats, only six to seven states had complete control by Democrats. Through, you know, Republicans on their hand had like 17, 20. I do remember hearing a lot of that. Uh, Democrats were getting really concerned that all the local elections and local boards were being taken by Republican yeah. candidates. And, and so the, the Republicans are, they are saying something that people are responding to. And maybe not on the in certain pockets throughout the country, not like Northern Virginia or out here in, you know, you know, any metropolitan area, but people, the Democrats need to broaden their base as an understanding that people are being hurt in other parts and they're not being heard. And so how do you respond to that? And they have the solutions. If they look to the past and then they think of how to apply them you know, to the present, it's not, it's, of course it's difficult, but it's not, you know, they, they don't have to you know, forfeit the field. And I think in many respects, what we got with no offense, I don't know how anyone in the room, in the room voted, 
But Bernie was, a, he's a left wing populist. He, yeah. w- he was not a progressive. And the fact that the media portrayed well, him I think as a progressive. Everyone knows that he's a left wing populist, right? No, he, Anderson Cooper doesn't, hasn't figured this one out yet. Mm. Anderson, you, know, you, you have CNN saying that did, did, Hillary, did Bernie make Hillary more progressive? It's like, no. She made, she, he made her more populist, <laughs> going to a base on an emotional level, which she seems to be incapable of doing, emotional attachment to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, <laughs> I'm like, I'm bashing on hillary i don't mean to i mean like she's well so you so you think the way to combat this takeover of populism is through more like traditional progressive yeah i think yeah because this is the people so So what is is like the traditional progressive policies i think so let's back it up a little bit for a moment uh roseanne was recently on re-aired you saw that no I mean, I heard about it. Yeah. Did you see how many people turned in for it? No, I have no idea. 18 million people turned in to watch a sitcom. Is that a lot? Yes. In okay. In this day and age, just sit down and watch it. Yeah. There's a nostalgia factor. It is Roseanne. And it's from the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about the show that got my attention is that the promotion. So she, her and uh, John Goodman went on Jimmy Kimmel. And Jimmy Kimmel is riding her a little bit like, well, you know, you're a liberal person. What happened? And she's like, I didn't change. You did. Mm. You kept moving, and I, the one thing that I don't think the left has really grasped how much is that they have moved. A lot of them, they think I am the sane one. I'm the one who has always stood for the right thing, and I've done the same thing. And this, the right has gotten more radical. The right has moved to the right. That's no dissident. But the left has moved too. My grandfather's a great example of someone who, as a conservative, you know, a Democrat, but as a, but he's like I was. He wasn't conservative. He voted for you know, for Kennedy. He was that kind of guy. He's a Kennedy Democrat. And then the party kept moving away from him. So I, that's a cliche at this point, but I want people to pay more attention to how much their, their views are not lined up with where everyone else is. Because we live in a country where you have to, you are in a society. You have to think about what's effective. If, if, all I, if every position I take is only for what makes me think is best, doesn't mean I'm in, and I'm going to lose. I'd rather you know, make some compromises somewhere. I'd rather have a guy in, in Pennsylvania be a Democrat on, and vote against Pelosi or whoever he says he's going to vote against, but still have someone who has, has an active voice. And that's how the Democrats are going to win at this point. I have. And I'd having, say, pro, and having, pro, having progressive valence. So, so the reason I said the idea of progressive in a more of an old school progressive, that sounds ridiculous to say it that way, but is the importance of these are things people are comfortable with right now. And gi- giving them more new and more new and more extreme is not something that people are comfortable with. And I, a lot of the, back to the system aspect is that, People talk a lot about gerrymandering. Yeah, I'm fine with gerrymandering. Okay? And look at talking to people back home. There's actually no one really cares. <laughs> huh. Gerrymandering is not an issue. Really? Well, because the gerrymandering for most states where they have, of course, there are politically, you do have situations where we are disrupting this and that, and we are. But particularly for a state like West Virginia, you have three, you have three districts, and they're broken up by industry. The north is lumber. And and and, and uh, you know type of work down the south the, the south is uh, coal and in the middle is commerce. It's it, so it runs right through the center from the eastern panhandle down through the capital. So keep so keep it in keep it in line with the idea that. Um, I I don't want to get into gerrymandering because no, that's no, a no, larger no, topic but, and no, we're almost out of time. I don't want to talk about I'm saying the thing is it's more important and what people what these people see that I talk to back in in Appalachia is the primary system. And this is backed up by, there's even 538 that talks about this. The, if you want a bigger bang for your buck, the primary system. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, back when, you, 
my grandfather was old enough to remember when to work for the state road, you had to be the of the party of who's in power. Huh. Yeah. That sounds kind of corrupt. Sounds weird, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's how it worked back in the day. And so moving forward now that you, unions have lost their sway, yes, but the parties have lost theirs. This starts with the Democrats in 1968. Yeah, election. I wanted to ask you about this um, because this is something you posted, which like I felt not personally attacked by, but you said that uh, policy is the purview of parties. And so if you are not part of a party, you mm-hmm. are removing your voice from, yes. from the... And like that, I mean, because I've recently like stepped away from the the feminist like group as a as a general grouping and like and i have always been independent my entire life even though i've voted democrat in almost every single election and position that i can think of i i still i don't like parties and you're saying that i am basically disenfranchising myself by not being part of a party absolutely can you explain that like why is that policy because okay who makes policy lawmakers no no well i guess think tanks so uh, the people who pr- you propose policy come through parties. They come through think tanks providing a federal level. And then, of course, you have some party issues that people pick up on at the, at a state level. But, may, but mainly you have to have people doing the research, giving you the numbers, giving you the arguments as a politician. So the, the legislation is built out of what academic well, – sorry, what the academics, that, which is funneled through the think tanks. And so once, if you don't have a sway to it, even if you might be a middle-of-the-road person, you're not going to have any impact if you're not a part of the system. As in, in the system is Democrat, Republican, you might have some libertarian people who will use a Cato argument you know, somewhere along the way. But yeah, so when you're, when you're not a part of a party, you, have, you don't have a say in what policy happens. And what, the bigger thing I find is but as, you don't as, have the a middle, as the middle has gotten larger— you don't have a say even if you are part of a party. It's all the elites that make the decisions. You can just vote for one party or the other, and they both suck. But you don't, you're not tempering the edges. You are not signaling to the Republicans that they need to stay moderate. You know, they don't need to go so culture war about, about who, who kneels at a, at a football game. You, know, you don't need to be on the left saying that, you know, yeah, you know putting a, a cancer warning on Starbucks coffee is kind of stupid, California. I mean, like this is the this is the extremism. I mean, so what happens is as the the right moves to the right and the left moves to the left, and this is back to the party. This is the election process, the primary process. As we keep moving move, on to the radicals or the more devotees of the party, and because move further to the right, now the people who are more moderate in the party move to the to the center as independent, and there's a nobleness to being a moderate, and actually not re, not moderate, but being independent. Back up. So there's a nobleness to being independent. It's one thing to be moderate. It's another thing to be independent. And so by, by disfranchising yourself voluntarily, by not being in a party, you're not signaling to the people in power through your vote, and you're also not having any say if you're going to be in the policy realm about what are, what's, what's concerned. But if the people in the power just expect my vote anyway... No. They, they, no. If this, if, I think about... Um, I mean... I Barney, uh, was, uh, Barney Frank... Barney Frank was asked this question about, you know, what, what was the biggest fear we had? Like, who did he, he's like, my constituents. I answered to no one of my constituents. And this, allu- I, being a person who worked in D.C. and knows quite a few politicians who were there working the think tanks, 
it is a misnomer to think that the parties, you know, or the not parties, but the politicians are bought by corporate interests or bought by lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more values, and because they're concerned about getting reelected. And no matter how much money someone gives you, you're not going to get elected if you vote for against what your constituents want. But how and the hell do you do you tell your town hall meetings? If you're a voting Democrat or a voting Republican, hey, I'm just. And I'm, I want to go to right. town hall meetings. They're such a pain in the they ass. They are. They are. But you're vocalizing your concern, and this is where I think understanding civics, not to you per se, but the way of, a voter has the ability to say, "Here's my values, and here are my concerns." Think tanks offer up. Well, actually, politicians go back to think tanks and through whatever members of their staff that say these are the values and concerns. Now, find reasons that or ways that can we can do this. I think, uh, and t- tying back to what Stephen and me were talking about before you showed up, this would be one of those great reasons to have a a homemaker contract person, like because I don't want to go to fucking town hall meetings, but maybe if someone else doesn't mind, <laughs> they can handle that for the household, like a representative to go to town hall meetings for you. You're <laughs> right. Like like representing like the, the, the family unit here. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna do, cau- do a caucus thing, but the main thing is you have to make your you have to show that you're a you know a voting member. And that you're going to be valued in the primary, and you got to then, you know, voice your values and concerns, and temper people's views, like, like the issue, like you know, um, about trade and, and with with China, with the, with doing tariffs. I mean, every, you know, this is something that, much as I despise Trump for doing it, and I think it's a, it's well, I don't, I know it's a faulty policy. Obama did it. Uh, Bush did it. This is not out of the norm. For presidents to do this, and they do it because they have to appease the voters. Obama did it because of, he had to put he put tariffs on cheap tires from China. Yeah, yeah. And in doing that, we cost you know you know. I heard like three billion dollars or something. Well, it's a, it a nearly a, yeah, something like that. Uh, but I was going to say that the uh, but in doing oh, that, thousands China, of jobs too. Yeah, thousands. Oh God, thousands. Because it was meant to save a thousand t- tire jobs in Ohio. He made a campaign promise. And this is the other thing. We actually track this. Politicians do keep their campaign promises more times than not. This is something that, you know, go to political scientists and they do studies on this. And so, keep, but maybe bringing this back is that, you know, my hometown was going to be affected by that because by, China was attempting a trade war, you know, response with tariffs on chicken feet. Mm. Random thing. Uh, but they didn't do it. But now we, we see a little more of this because it's more aggressive. You know, steel is a bigger, you know, export for China than tires were. I hate to do this, mm-hmm. but we did get started a little late, and I kind of have to wrap things up here in the next few minutes. Okay, I feel like we've got a round two in the works. Would you be willing to come back for a second round? Talk about some other things. Yeah, in the we future? T- totally. Uh, I feel um, well, I get long winded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the big thing at the end of the day is like trying to encapsulate these things in conversation. It's not about here's here's my bullet point. Here's you know, wrapping these things to people in general. And and what are their stories? What are their narratives? And so trying to exemplify that in some regards right now. So yes, uh, that'd be fine. I do feel like we have learned quite a bit more about you personally too, as you were saying with the narratives and and the well, yeah, and talking so that, to people. Well, and that's a big the big thing. There's so many more. I mean, there's people talking. Yeah, God, there's so many things I talk to people about back home. Not just the Me Too movement. Not just about you know Trump as explicitly about uh, his tweeting per se, uh, and about what where have all the men gone? There's a lot more that these people talk about. Um, and a lot more about community that that matters to these people. And it's, it's weird altruism, and I hate the word altruism, mm-hmm. but there is a sense of altruism out of it that people are not concerned about. What, what do you mean? Um, people, they're not, so they can be doing well. This is actually going to be a little back to the, about the guys making knives out of their, you know, and, and leather work. These people are not concerned about their jobs anymore. They have found a way to survive 
what they're concerned about is their community. And so, and they're concerned about the guy down the street. They're concerned about the kid. They don't have a kid in, in high school anymore, but they're concerned about the kids in high school. Their kid graduated and, and moved out, but they're concerned about, you know, you know, the, the football team, you know, members about their, not, about keeping them, keeping their nose clean. You're not tearing down Christmas lights. <clears throat> So we, uh, I, I had I had an English teacher in high school who got got the book thrown at him, came and a bunch of the football players did something ridiculous like that. But great man, grew, really, they hit him hard, and he grew up quickly and uh, was a, was one of the best teachers I've ever had in high school. But but point being the story is it it's also understanding narrative and people grow and there's redemption. That's a big thing. Also, I find a lot people believe in redemption and they believe in nuance much more in rural America than people give them credit for. Mm. So, so much of what I come across by having conversations, you realize that no one really supports anything 100%. Any position you support, sometimes it could be you know, 55. You know, and you see this with you know, drug you, you know, idea of legalization of marijuana and, and Appalachia. Not a lot of people really support it. On, you know, there's people who support it, but I'm saying there's, there's a good vocal side who have an argument, you know, kind of very similar to John Kasich's, which is it's hard to tell kids don't do drugs while legalizing other drugs. Well, you, and it, and so, and I, it's back to narrative. How do you pitch this? Right. I, I think and, yeah. all the drugs should be legalized and teach the kids what happens when you use them. Well, that's my grand, my, my grandfather was very much about or else like, bringing home brochures of like, this is what happens. Or here's a, here's a, a, a photo of a guy we brought in. It was on meth last week. I mean, we already it's have kinda, uh, legalized alcohol, which is one of the more dramatically bad for you drugs. It, well, there's, but there's a cultural significance with this is another thing back to narrative you know there's a cultural significance with alcohol that's different than a cultural significance with heroin sure or with cocaine right and so but in terms of just effects on your body alcohol is pretty high up there no i'm but again this is back to think again statistics and reports do not convince people (laughs) okay damn so uh i'm sorry go ahead go ahead what were you gonna say uh it was not related well, okay. it, one last thing, I guess, maybe. Uh, this is not about rural uh, Appalachia, but talking about narrative. Um, so I write for a, a site called Eradicus.co, if you want to go and check it out. Um, there's a lady who wrote on it a, a piece about uh, when she was in Africa during the Ebola crisis. And the impor- importance of medical aid and medicine in general is not... It was is overshadowed. I won't back that up. So there's a far go back in the story. Um, mainly narrative matters, and so here, the lady wrote an article about being when she was in Africa with the Ebola crisis, and uh, you have all the medical treatment available and doctors and trying to get people vaccinated or trying to get people quarantined and other different things. You know. And without a narrative to tell people why they need to care about the facts and they need to care about the medicine, they need to care about their own health without caring about their children, without a narrative, medicine didn't work. And this is, and so they had to develop this narrative structure as aid workers to provide the medicine and the Ebola treatment available to these people. And the same thing with, with Latin America, sorry, with uh, rural Appalachia. Nothing has hurt credibility of doctors like the opioid crisis. Hmm. This is another thing of experts failing us. Doc, you know, we have, you have, you know, I have a friend who's in a band and we really got to go. Okay. Now. Oh, I'm it, sorry. Oh, it's, all right, go ahead. Quick. Okay. All right. Okay. So you can do it quick. I have a friend in the band and they, and it's a local band and they, and very popular around the area. And they have a song called white coat man. And it's all about 
how doctors have hurt you know the rural population. So this is a very big th- you know thread right now is experts are failing, and not just in, in Africa but also in rural Appalachia. And that's and so narrative is important to get everyone out of this. And so facts is not going to do it. Statistics isn't. It's conversation and narrative. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that the you know like you said the the story that people have for themselves and for what they're drives their beliefs is what really matters. It's not they're not they didn't hear a statistic on the news and that's why they believe what they believe. They have this whole underpinning thing and uh, there's this line that not you know excuse me, there's this line that every racist voted for Trump, but not every Trump voter is a racist, right? They're not all tiki torch wielding Nazis. Don't get me wrong, none of the tiki, none of the tiki torch wielding Nazis voted for Clinton, but the the overwhelming majority of Trump voters are just people who, you know, aren't villains in most of our eyes, you know, but they're but they're so they they have they have stories that make the sense for themselves and sort of the Nazis, but the the stories that the uh the not tiki torch people have have for their for their motivations are the kinds of things that we can almost all find common ground on. You find something in the middle and be like, Hey, I care about that too. I don't want, I don't want you dying of opioid addiction. I don't want you uh, losing your job. I don't want your society falling apart, that sort of stuff. And you know, there, there's a, a, a huge uh, collection of everything that we all can care about together. Right. And so I think I, I like humanizing people that we tend to disagree with. Right. It's really easy, especially if you're on the far left to be like, everyone over there is a monster and they're, you know, they're, they all, you know, wish they had swastikas tattooed on their foreheads or whatever. It's like, no, they're, they're just people like you and me. They just, their, their values aligned a little differently from their, from their narrative history. Right. Yeah. And that's the same for far as, I mean, of course, we like the look from the right to the left and everyone wants to take your guns. So yeah, it's very much of, you know, my sister and her husband voted for Trump and, but they're not homophobic. They're not anti-Semitic. They, you know, they voted for not being talked down to. And a lot of people, they looked at voting for Trump as an end of PC and censorship. Not about his policies, not about his rhetoric itself, but about what Hillary responded to. You know, or we're talking about what Hillary represented. And that's very similar to thinking about what would a you know, Hillary presidency look like and the counterfactual. And I don't think a lot of people talk about this. You know, Sam Harris had there not first time, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so when you think about what the opportunity is, these people saw that and maybe, you know, just not being talked down to for four years might help them. And it, it, there's a release valve of energy. But you, you're lumping people that I know who have the same values as I do, who disagree on basic, like 25% here, five, you know, 5% there, and then they voted the other way for someone who doesn't respect, in my mind, the rule of law, doesn't respect you know, the norms of the office or the dignity of the office, doesn't have basic economics on its side but with that said they're not bad people most of the, it, it, they agree on so many things back to the me too thing they agree there should not be sexual harassment in the workplace they just don't see the narrative that's, that's coming across their facebook thread or through the media as in the one that reflects their reality so there's a lot more agreement but what we're doing is we are painting you know people in one brush and say you're a nazi or you are a fascist and we're not actually getting much done from that. Uh, before we go, is there anything you would like to plug? Some place people can hear your music or that website you were oh, just talking about? So, uh, yeah, so there's a website that uh, I write for. My buddy started from D.C. called uh, Eradicus.co. Um, it's just long-form essays on varying topics. Um, there's a host of writers. that actually just opened up a poetry section recently. Uh, so We will link that yeah. on the blog. Yeah. 
Cool. And that's and, uh, besides that, uh, no, I haven't got my flow cast up yet on YouTube. I'm working okay. on it though. Cool. cool. <laughs> Hopefully by the time you come back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. I want to do this again if you're available. Cool. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all in two weeks. Thanks.